Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. The main message is that local authorities need the support of local government, whether it's funding support or in regulation or devolution support, in order to be the change makers that that they need to be in their local areas. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt and Becky. Today we're going to be talking about the co-benefits of climate action. If you're an avid listener of the show, you may have noticed that most of the conversations we have with our guests focus on way more than just energy or carbon emission reductions. Whether it's community cohesion that results from low traffic neighbourhoods, health outcomes from working in community gardens or just getting out of your car and onto a bike, or some of the sustainable jobs and careers that could be created through new insulation and electrification programmes, there are just so many benefits that climate action can bring about. But unfortunately, today, most of these are not captured when policies are set or investments are planned. So today we'll be chatting with Dom Boyle from the Cities and Sustainability team at PwC. Dom is one of the main authors of a brand new report, Accelerating Net Zero Delivery, which captures data about all the potential benefits of climate action and shows that doing things locally can make a huge difference. The report shows that outcomes are significantly better when places tailor their net zero delivery to the needs and opportunities of their local communities. And I know, Matt, you especially like this report because of the sheer number of graphs that it contains backing up these very bold statements that it puts forward. Fundamentally, that the UK needs new delivery frameworks, new governance models, new finance and funding instruments, new skills and capacity development approaches, all focused around joining up local action with national policy. So very, very exciting. And of course, we'll do our very best to bring the discussion back to a practical level as well in terms of what we can all do to get involved. And as always, you can reach out to us at our dedicated Twitter handle, if you haven't already, go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions over there. Also, email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. 
But before we get into this very exciting discussion today, I think we'd better reflect back on what's been happening over the past few weeks with the good, the bad and the weird. Certainly. So, Matt, (laughs) what have you got for us? Well, let's begin with the good news. We had a ban on bad news, I think, in the last episode. We did. Uh, So let's keep that flavour. Let's start with the good news. Um, And I think last time I talked a bit about a company called Ripple Energy, which is taking a whole new way of distributing ownership of local wind farms to try and reduce your energy bills. Many of you will, uh, many of the listeners will have heard of Octopus Energy, one of the fastest growing energy suppliers. Becky, we've talked about Octopus in the past. Yeah, I'm with Octopus and taking advantage of some of their uh, innovative tariffs, which is, yeah, really exciting stuff that they're doing. Absolutely. And there's, and there's another innovation from them coming. They're coming thick and fast at the moment called their Octopus Fan Club. Now, the benefits of this is that you can essentially sign up to be supplied by uh, supplied power by a local wind farm. Um, I suspect they may broaden this out to other technologies in, in due course. So, hang on, hang on. I'm just getting that fan club, right? So I was imagining like groupies, but you mean fan as in like a windmill. Big fans. Yeah, in, <laughs> big fans. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. The kind of things when your kids point and go, ah, big fan. So this is <laughs> this is really cutting edge marketing stuff. Um, so 100% renewable electricity supplied from your local fan, your wind turbine. 20% off your unit rate, so the, the price you pay per unit of electricity, 20% off, and in the context of electricity bills having gone up. That's huge. Yep. So 20% off your turbine when it's spinning and mm-hmm. you're using your electricity, and 50% off your unit rate, halving your unit rate, when the wind picks up and the green electrons are really flowing, i.e. it's kind of a surplus. Wow. Now, before you all get too excited, and Becky, before you get excited. Too late. There are only two of these available at the moment. Oh, okay. Uh, one in East Yorkshire um, and one in South Wales. Okay, but they're expecting to roll this out. So you need to be living nearby and you also need a smart meter, but they are encouraging people to sign up their interest. Um, and I'll just finish on this point. Octopus are looking to create some kind of community benefit directly from this. They're a little vague about what that might be at the moment. They include things like educating local school children, investing in local community funds. But I think the um, the intention is there. And I mean, ultimately, this is good news in getting people maximizing their use of renewables, minimizing their use of gas, mm-hmm. and just reducing bills all around. So very, very exciting model. I mean, I wish I, I wish I lived there. I feel like I need to write to talk to person and, <laughs> and get a wind farm. You know, it's, come on. It's just another reason for me to move to East York. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I've actually got some good news as well. And I think it, it relates in that it's a, it's a different take on how we can, again, do things to try and reduce our dependence on gas and reduce our bills. But instead of switching to renewables, it's more focused on what we can do to shift our demand. And so there was a great news article in The Guardian. And at the end of it, it pulled together a whole load of recommendations Mm. about what people can actually do in their homes. And and some of it's challenging. You know, some of it's not accessible to everyone, like insulating your home and uh, replacing gas boilers with heat pumps and so on. Of course, we've talked about that before. It's not always easy. It's costly, but also you might not have the the autonomy, the, the agency to do it. You might not own the home, for instance. Exactly, exactly. But 
for those people that can, and this is right now kind of the emerging news in terms of uh, Rishi Sunak's statement, which is coming out as we are talking. I realise, uh, you know, that will yes. probably be what we, <laughs> old We have news. a live news feed <laughs> open at Local Zero HQ um, at the moment. But, uh, but really good news in that uh, people that are installing energy efficiency measures like solar panels, heat pumps or insulation will pay no VAT. So, you know, it's a good time to get in and do that. There are easier things that people can do that we can all do. And one, in fact, you pointed this out to me, Matt, is turn the thermostat down on your boiler. So not yeah. for your household heating, but your boiler. Now, I had no idea how to do that. And you linked me to a really great article that sort of walks that through. So perhaps we can put that in our show notes for, yeah. for people like me that want to do it and just don't really understand how to. Um, but obviously other measures as well. So absolutely keep your thermostat below 19 degrees. Keep your shower time to four minutes. Always a good tip. Play a song that you know is four minutes and make sure you're out by the end of the song. That's what I do. Yeah. Turning lights off. I think things that we know, but it's just kind of building building in those habits uh, around all of that. But it can make a big difference. Certainly can. And we're having to throw absolutely everything at this at the moment. So you know, some really good examples there. And as you say, some some interesting policies that are coming out as we speak. Probably at that point, time to turn to the bad news. Um, and each week comes uh, not just one, but several stories about how the energy crisis is affecting people. Mm -hmm. And I was taken with this, Becky, I mean, you and I are both parents, we've both got young kids. Uh, thankfully, I don't. I think it's fair to say neither of us would categorise ourselves as fuel poor. But the thought of living in a home mm -hmm. where I am actively having to make a decision about whether my kids are going to heat or eat, or whether I'm going to have to heat or eat, uh, is is terrifying. Yeah. So when I read in the news this week that the End Fuel Poverty Coalition uh, estimated that. Two and a half million households with children will be in fuel poverty once the new energy price cap comes into effect on the 1st of April. That's two and a half million households. Now, that's roughly two in five households with children. That rises to more than half of households with children if we look at just single parent homes. So frightening. Really frightening. It's really frightening, particularly when you look at the, you know, the knock-on consequences. And you talk about heating or eating, but I mean, I have I have spent time in a home that I couldn't heat, and it was down to the poor building stock. And I actually developed um, asthma-like symptoms from just living in this home for a few years. Mm -hmm. And so, for children that are growing up in those early developmental stages, the the links to some of these um, kind of chronic diseases and chronic respiratory diseases at the same time that we're yeah. you know battling through this terrible pandemic, it's just it's really really worrying stuff. And frankly, some of the policies that were announced by Chancellor Rishi Sunak just moments ago, uh, and again we've just had wind of these so we haven't had time to fully digest but on the face of it they don't they won't fundamentally change those numbers uh, we've seen uh, an uplift in national insurance to roughly twelve and a half thousand pounds which will mean that some of these parents some of the even households without children some of them won't be paying national insurance which will help to some extent mm. we've also seen uh, funding for councils double to tackle the most vulnerable homes which i'm sure will make a, a, a crucial difference to some some homes but the other policies becky um the one that will be cheered by many folk um uh, with cars uh, nationwide uh, cutting fuel duty by five pence which will save roughly the rac think about three pounds per tank um 
is actually a highly regressive policy because it helps those who drive the most, who you know run around in the most uh, fuel-consuming vehicles. But yes, more to do, I would say. A lot more to do, and perhaps some better targeting would have been would have been nice to see in that. Well, we shall see how that develops. But um, I do have a weird one, if you fancy it. Oh, I always love a weird one, Matt. Come on. Okay. Well, there's a backstory to this one. I was uh, in the Trossachs. So for those of you uh, who don't know, the Trossachs is part of the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park, uh, just north of Glasgow. Um, and my mum my and dad uh, were there. They were on holiday. In fact, my, my kids had uh, joined them for a couple of days. And we were off a little loch there. And my dad turns to me and says, I've, I've just seen... Um, I've just seen a, a beaver's lodge. I said, excuse me. Um, so I completely didn't believe him. Uh, not, I mean, he's a very believable chap, um, very trustworthy, but didn't believe a word of it. <laughs> so he, uh, I forced him to go and take me to see it. So anyway, go down and there are trees littered everywhere. Cut. I don't know where Becky ever watched. Uh, I think it's on one of the Disney's, which I have just on repeat in my household, Lady in the Tramp, where the beaver kind of cuts down the this tree into like a twiglet and then it just falls. Trees everywhere like this. And it uh, got me thinking, you know, in terms of reintroduction, uh, rewilding. And apparently there is a, a beaver family living on this lock and it's one of a thousand beavers now living across Scotland, uh, across 250 territories. And from a climate perspective, that's really important. So just off the top of your head, Becky, have you got any idea about why you think beavers might be a good thing for no, uh, and climate actually, mitigation would... or climate adaptation? No, and in fact, like in my mind, obviously, short time thinking, I'm just thinking, oh, you know. You just think Matt's going off on one about beavers. Trees yeah, falling okay. down all around. <laughs> I know. I know. So, so you're going to have some to very local zeros. He's finally lost it. Um, well, they do a number of things that are important. Firstly, I mean, we all know beavers dam, right? Yep. And that means that they slow down the rate of water. So with climate change, we have much more frequent periods of intensive rainfall and more flash flooding. Oh. So the more damming you have, the slower you can, uh, that, that water flow and reduction in, in flooding. But they can also help to clean the water um, in terms of filtering this water through these dams. But another carbon point Wetlands are really good for sequestering carbon, locking that carbon up and keeping those emissions locked up in our landscape. So a kind of a weird good news story because we tried to reintroduce them back in 2009, uh, a place called Napdale in Argyle, the Argyle Peninsula. It didn't really work, but then they just took to other areas. So uh, yeah, a really nice story, I think, and a, a bit of a weird one too. Yeah, definitely a weird one, but but quite exciting. <laughs> Get out there, see more wildlife. I love it. <laughs> Didn't think you'd hear that today. Uh, okay, so, but on to, on to possibly more pressing matters. Uh, we have uh, our guests waiting in the wings to talk a little more about place-based climate action. Yeah, and, and let's see if he mentions the beavers as one of the co-benefits. <laughs> I, I sincerely doubt it. Hi, I'm Dol Boyle. I'm an economist at PwC Sustainability and Climate Change Team, working in cities and local government and trying to help them and all of us understand the costs and benefits of getting to net zero. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dom. It's really, really great to have you on Local Zero and also to talk a little bit about um, some of the phenomenal insights that came out of the report you released recently, Accelerating Net Zero Delivery. And I think 
for myself and Matt, one of the things that really excites us about that report is that you focus not just on carbon emission reductions or cost reductions, but you talk a lot about the co-benefits of climate action and why local is important in that. And I guess before we really start to dig into things in too much depth, perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about what you mean by co-benefits. So what are you talking about when you say co-benefits and, and how might different people experience these things differently? Sure. And thanks for having me. Uh, so before I get into the co-benefit side of things, just to explain the context of this report, um, I think we all know that net zero is a crucial challenge, both for local governments and for the country at large. And we handily had a net zero strategy that came out last year. And we know that buildings and transport, which are two big urban sectors, are responsible for way more than 40% of the emissions, depending on you know which region you're looking at. So Innovate UK wanted to understand, uh, you know, we, we've got a feeling that local is better. Anyone who works in this space understands that we need to do things locally in order to get our emissions down because the way that things are implemented on the ground is, a, is always local in nature. But we also understand that local's not happening fast enough. And so UKRI, Innovate UK, wanted to understand what are the benefits of local delivery versus less local delivery? And how can we use that information about those benefits to make the case to national government about how we link up local delivery and national enablement? So to your question, um, we, we worked with a team from University of Leeds and Oli Energy to try and really understand the value of this concept of co-benefits. And when we say co-benefits, we mean things that are happening alongside climate change um, abatement. So greenhouse gas emission reduction in itself is a big benefit for the environment, but it also comes handily with lots of other benefits like clean air, like safer streets, like fewer road accidents, um, more people on bikes have physical health benefits. Um, and in the building sector, warmer homes means less people suffering from winter cold and more productive workforce, which is good for us and good for the treasury. So when I say co-benefits, it's, it's a bucket of things around these health, productivity, and well-being type issues that we, we've used green book treasury methodologies to, to value. Perfect. So picking up on that, I think, just wanted to understand from your assessment here, because there were some real kind of hard-hitting numbers, Dom, that came out. So if I can paraphrase, so place-based approach cost roughly a quarter of a place agnostic approach. But for that money, you'd get twice the energy savings versus the place agnostic approach and twice the social benefits. Now, these are the kind of numbers, in my mind, you can take to an energy minister, even a chancellor, and you would be in a position, I'd hope, to convince them that maybe local is better. So I just wanted you maybe to explain a little bit about how you got to those numbers and what kind of assumptions were behind them. Sure. And it, it, exactly, you're right. The numbers are really striking and they were striking for us when they came out of the models. Um, I would caution that it is a spectrum we're dealing with here. So on the one side, when we say place-based, we mean if you took the deployment pathways in the net zero strategy, so that's things like the 600,000 heat pumps a year target that we're aiming for and 55% of all journeys in urban places to be made on a bike or, or walking. So if you took those targets and you applied them across the country, we would still have a lot of social benefits. But then we wanted to understand, well, what if you were able to take the most cost-effective benefits first? 
and deploy them first of all. So the benefits that cost you the least and abate the same amount of carbon. And when we say cost, we mean both the financial cost. So a measure that warms your home, but maybe cheaper than a very expensive retrofit and still abates carbon, but also the measures that have the most social benefits. So for example, the things we talked about before, air quality, uh, warm homes, etc. So we essentially ranked all of 500 different measures in six major cities in the UK. And we used that ranking to understand if I was in charge of that local authority, how would I prioritize my spending and my interventions? And I stress the fact that it's a spectrum because that's not exactly how net zero will be delivered. Net zero will be delivered based on local preferences and on feasibility and on various other things. But understanding those places in detail and understanding the cost and benefits and ranking them allowed us to create this picture of what we call the place-specific, uh, kind of place-based deployment. And just to give you some examples of why it's not realistic, you know, the most cost-effective measures we had there were walking and turning down your thermostat. Now, it would be great if everyone turned their thermostat down, uh, but we're not really in a position to do that. And we probably shouldn't be. I know there was a conversation on your show a couple of weeks ago about um, people who were wearing ski suits. And that's, that's a, a very cost-effective measure, but it's maybe not the way that we want to get to net zero. In terms of walking, again, lots of us could walk to work, lots of us can't. So there are some really cost-effective measures that are in that kind of far-out bucket where they're not going to happen at scale. And there are some other ones that we are able to do far more efficiently if we look at the places in which they're delivered. So that's the key point, Dom, I think, is that we've got the same 500 measures. Is that correct? But you're essentially deploying these in a place-sensitive way versus a place-insensitive way. That's correct. And you find that these are cheaper to do, uh, cheaper to implement if it's place sensitive, but also they they yield more more benefit. That's right. Yeah. There's there's a couple of examples in the in the housing space. The benefits are not as different as the, as in the transport space. So, for example, if you look at one deployment of a heat pump, largely that's a technology that works the same in most houses. And you, you'd be talking social benefits of about £5,000 across the population, whether that's in Swansea or Glasgow. And those benefits are because the people in Swansea and Glasgow would have warmer homes, etc. So that's an example of a benefit that largely doesn't change. If you look at cycling, for example, the way that the benefit of cycling is calculated is based on physical activity. It's also based on removing cars from the road, clean air, various other things. But one of the biggest drivers of why active travel is good for society is because it creates healthier people. And unfortunately, Glasgow has a life expectancy significantly lower than other cities in the UK. And that includes post-industrial cities like Liverpool and Manchester. And because Glasgow is a less healthy place in general, the benefits of getting Glaswegians onto bikes means that cycling is a really sensible thing to do in Glasgow. It's more cost-effective. So... I mean, this is really exciting. And you talked about 500 measures. And I mean, like in my head, I, I'm really struggling to think of more than about 20, 30 different measures. And then you're not just looking at how much does it cost to say buy a heat pump or, well, I guess walking has very little cost associated with it. Um, but the benefits, you know, you're quantifying these and in different ways for different cities. So that presumably there's quite a lot of complexity and data that sort of comes into 
understanding how those how those benefits come to be. I mean, how did you get to these numbers for such a diverse range of measures? On the social benefit side, that that was a little bit newer, but the methodology that we're using has been around for a long time. So the, the Treasury releases something called the Green Book, which is a large technical guidance for doing project appraisal. And it means that when you go to Treasury to apply for funds, the Treasury will say, well, please tell me how that will benefit society. So for example, if I want to apply for a loan to my bank for a heat pump, my bank will care, will they get the money back? If I want to apply to Treasury for a heat pump, they'd be interested in whether that's going to increase my productivity, whether I'll spend the energy savings in the shops and increase the tax take, and whether it's going to create jobs. So it's a very different way of understanding costs and benefits when you're the government versus when you're a private sector provider. Um, and and the, the measures that we have valued in there, so things like congestion, clean air, physical activity, warm homes, there are methods in the Green Book that tell you how to value these different things. And we've used treasury methods on almost every occasion. So Dom, I, I'm, I can see in my mind, I'm splitting this in, in two ways. It's the cost of doing things locally or, or not versus the benefit that you get for doing it locally or not. And I completely understand. I think your example there of uh, deploying cycling infrastructure in Glasgow could yield greater health benefits versus, say, somewhere where there's a slightly healthier population. That makes sense. For each pound you spend in Glasgow, you're going to yield wider social benefit. But I wondered if you could just unpack and explain why the cost of doing things locally is lower versus a place agnostic approach. So that largely comes down to local autonomy. So if we look at the net zero strategy or various other pathways, such as the one that the Committee for Climate Change use, most of them assume a level of modeling that is uniform across the country. So for example, if a heat pump program was to be rolled out and funded by bees locally, and you have one list of suppliers, then that would be the way that heat pumps are rolled out across the country. And so certain types of heat pumps, certain installers, would be used uniformly. Now, I think anyone who works in this space knows that that's not how this space works. You want to use the right type of, whether it's a heat pump or insulation or fabric, you want to use the right type of measure in the right place. And the difference in housing stock between somewhere like Cambridge and Peterborough versus Swansea versus Liverpool are very different. I think in Glasgow, 75% of people live in flats. And that means that Glasgow is really susceptible to measures such as district heating, which depend on density. It's, it's a series of things, but the cost measures really depend on unique local circumstances. When you use local knowledge to make those deployment decisions, you end up with more cost-effective deployment. So I would personally agree with your logic, but I play devil's advocate for a moment. I can imagine counter argument to that would be actually, if you go bespoke and think local, you're not getting the the scale that's required. You're not you're not benefiting from the economies of scale. You're not linking into a wider kind of national supply chain. I mean, that's not my view, but I have heard that argument. And is that something that you had to tackle in the modeling, that, that kind of trade-off between it being bespoke versus scale? Yeah, I think we did tackle that in the modeling and, and we didn't. So there are certain industries where you really do need to go scale or it's not going to work. So hydrogen is the obvious one. Either we take a decision as a country to do hydrogen or we don't do hydrogen. You can have hydrogen in Middlesbrough, but not have it anywhere else because the supply chains required to produce that hydrogen 
and to get it to the places it needs to be are too great. Heat pumps are a different example, as are bikes, as are buses. Most of these things can be done locally. There, there will be economies of scale in the production of bikes and buses, but at the local level, we're talking about implementation. So in answer to your question, we didn't consider whether hydrogen would be done at scale, but it's a local, it's a relevant factor. Okay, so, so there's an important uh, differentiation here between the value of the kind of economies of scale in terms of purchasing and procuring things versus the actual implementation. So by all means, put in a big national order for 10 million heat pumps, but then the question is about how you implement those and that should be local. Correct. So I have, I have something that seems to, to crop up a lot when we're talking about the sorts of investment decisions that are covered in your report and, and the outcomes. And we're talking a lot about these co-benefits. Now, coming back to come back to a couple of the examples we've talked about, right? So getting out of your car and walking more um, or getting a heat pump in your home, some of those co-benefits are going to be felt by the person that is engaging in that activity, right? So I'm, um, I'm at the moment, I'm walking 100 miles in March as part of a, a WWF sponsored initiative. And it's great. Like I feel better for it. I get out. I personally um, reap some of that reward. Um, similarly, living in a warmer home, the you know, reductions in asthma, the health benefits, I'm going to feel that. But those benefits can't be quantified and traded off against the investment that I'm having to make. So how are you dealing with this challenge of, you know, who's paying and then who's able to leverage those benefits? Because the numbers you're talking about are huge, but as an individual, I'm not going to be experiencing that. So is there a, um, you know, is that part and parcel of why we need to be doing this locally? Is it to enable local investment and local capture of those benefits? Yes, that's a really good point. So the, the differences between the, the benefits of different measures are stark. So if you were to get into an electric vehicle tomorrow, trade in your old car for an electric vehicle, and then run that for the next 30 years, the social benefits of that are somewhere maybe between 100 and 500 pounds, not huge. So you're getting reduced carbon, but you're not getting the other benefits of moving to active travel or public travel. Now, compare that to if you were to trade your car in for a bike, you're talking between 10,000 pounds of social benefits that you create over that lifetime. Heat pumps and insulation are somewhere between three and 5,000 pounds per installation in social benefits. Now, in answer to your question, as individuals, we don't tend to take into account social benefits because they're what economists call public goods. They affect everyone, but they can't be captured by anyone. So my partner gets annoyed um, at me going on about this sort of stuff, but we bought a, a chimney for a back garden recently. And we bought these logs to burn in it and soon realized that it would annoy all the neighbors. But I decided to calculate <laughs> what the, the social damage that I was doing if I did burn those logs, not to my neighbors, but to society as a whole or to, to Southeast London. And for an eight pound bag of logs, I was creating 20 pounds worth of damage. So that damages to the NHS, to the productivity of Southeast Londoners. Now, I do have the choice of every time I use the chimney of donating 20 pounds to the NHS, but really this is the role of government. Government exists to regulate us, to not do things that have social damages and to do things that have social benefits. Your point about the bike there, I mean, I love the, love the example of the chimney, but the point about the bike and the social benefits versus those of the EV. And I think there's, there's a messaging here from your report that it's very important at this moment in time. We're seeing net zero slip into 
culture wars. It's definitely being picked up by certain political parties as the next focus for an emphasis on personal choice, removal and reduction of of regulations, uh, maximizing freedoms. And I, I mean, I've I won't go into the detail, but I've you know I've had incidents on the bike this week and. The the aggression towards his cyclists, and actually, I'm that what you've just said there should be screamed from the rooftops that we're actually saving the drivers around us money. And I think once the the debate falls into that category, it's a very different discussion that we can be having. Absolutely right. But, but once again, how are we going to get to net zero? Is it by bringing people along with us? Is it by changing behaviours by doing behavioural economics and nudge and these things, or is it by regulation? You're absolutely right in saying that getting from a car onto a bike is, is one of the most socially beneficial things that we can do, but it's also annoyingly one of the hardest things to persuade people to do. Yeah. London is a city that's made for bikes. There are some other cities in the UK that it's easy to cycle in. There are many in which it's not. And so the obvious answer is that government should spend yeah. on the infrastructure required to make it easier to cycle. That's a really important point and links, Becky, to our previous episode uh, a couple of weeks back on low-carbon infrastructure and the kind of definition of what that is. It's infrastructure that facilitates low-carbon behaviour. So what you're saying, you know, in terms of, maybe if we go back to the example of fuel and burning fuel, some people won't have the choice there to not, maybe if we put chimneys to one side, is that's a, or maybe more of a kind of social lu- luxurious thing. But in terms of solid fuels burning in the home, they're having to do that, but that comes at a high social cost. Why are they having to do it? Because the heat pump hasn't been installed yet. The report here makes a number of key recommendations, and I guess looking at them here, most of them are facing squarely at what government should be doing, right? So I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit more about what actions need to be taken. What do people do with your report now? Yeah, so it's a really good question. So we've what we've suggested, other than the social benefits, is that This is not just about understanding that benefits are higher than costs. I think most people in government do understand that, but especially in local government where many of these decisions will be made, whether it's local government or local community groups or local energy companies or individuals like ourselves making these decisions in our daily lives, none of us have the upfront capital as a society, the upfront capital required to get to net zero within the next 30 years. It's not going to be possible without government intervention, both in, in a funding sense and in a regulation sense, that even if we were to convince ourselves that the social benefits are worth it, as I said, those social benefits don't accrue into our bank accounts. So they're not going to, we're not going to make those decisions independently. So I think the answer here is what we've suggested in our report is that we need some form of delivery framework that acts as a a glue between local government and national government. And there are various versions of that delivery framework around. We've got the net zero hubs. We've got the UK infrastructure bank offering technical assistance to local government, or it will be in the next few years. We've set out one example, like we've set out three different options of examples for what that could look like. But the main areas where we need to have better coordination around system governance, portfolio management, capacity and skills, and funding and financing. Now, those four categories won't be strangers to anyone who works in this space. But the main message is that local authorities, with the exceptions of very few, don't have those four aspects in abundance, and they need the support of local government, whether it's funding support or in regulation or devolution support, in order to be the change makers that that they need to be in their local areas. I really like that point. And um, 
it's it's really struck me when we saw the net zero strategy published at the tail end of last year that you know there's a lot of emphasis on this concept of local delivery yet at the same time no uh, devolution of responsibility no additional funding into local authorities and i was i was just thinking before when you were mentioning about cycling and the fact that that brings social benefits to people um you know ar- around us as well and uh, so Matt and I both live in the south side of Glasgow and there is uh, a kind of, I, I, I want to say like a temporary cycle way. I mean, it's not temporary. It's been there for some time, but it's basically a load of bollards that have just been put between um, a couple of lanes in the road to enable a cycle lane. And I know, Matt, you you use that and you have, uh, you know, it's it's really, really great to give you that space. I'm on a number of local Facebook groups and I can tell you there is so much anger towards it. Like people do not want it. And it's really interesting that there's investment, um, albeit sort of just through the form of bollards at this point, you know, at least in in our neighborhood. Um, While potentially delivering benefits for people that are still in their cars, they do not see that benefit. So to me, there's something really interesting in here about the kind of process that we need to go through. And it might be that there is this kind of pain point that we need to overcome before we are in a point where people actually see and realize and value these benefits that are being delivered. So to me, I can completely, um, you know, get on board with this this need to, to look at decisions at that local authority level and to look at how things can be delivered by local actors with an appreciation of that local context. It's, it's almost like people aren't aware they're co-benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So how do we make people aware? And and to put a pound sign in front of that can help. But as you say, Dom, if you're not feeling that in your own pocket. I mean, just maybe to, to round this off, there are also local costs, right? You know, we, we have to take into account that there is a hassle factor about getting out of your car and onto a bike. There's also a big hassle factor about having a heat pump installed. And those things can also be valued. And there's a reason that people don't do these things. It's not just about cost savings or social benefits. It's also because they've not been incentivized to do so. And again, that's another rule for government. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really fascinating discussion and is making me, you know, my brain is going off in so many different directions here. But one of the things we really, really like to do toward the end of the show is to to bring it back to what people can do. So what can I do? What can Matt do? What can people listening to the pod do to start to make a difference? So if they uh, believe in everything we're saying, how can folk get involved and I loved your example about <laughs> donating 20 pounds to the NHS every time you uh you burn one of your logs but do you have any any um other suggestions for what people can do to get involved so the frank answer is no <laughs> I mean so I don't know whether it's it's worth trying to to give an answer here but the things that people can do at the local level are are well understood they are trying to walk and cycle instead of getting in your car they are trying to convert your heating system to a heat pump or installing insulation if you can afford it. But we recognize through this report and in, in other work that we've done that not everyone can afford this. And particularly with low-income households, it's a bit much to ask people who can't afford to pay the fuel bill to also install a heat pump. Mm. So ultimately, what people can do is vote for parties who are going to do greener things and write to their MP and become activists and campaign for this sort of thing. Yeah. And of course, to stop buying chimneys, Dom. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> 
brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much for that fascinating discussion and a fascinating report, which we will be sure to name check on the website and on social media. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. And uh, great discussion. Uh, as always, uh, please do go and visit us on Twitter. Get involved in the discussions there. We are at Local Zero Pod. Um, email us if you've got longer thoughts that you can't constrain to a tweet. We're localzeropod at gmail.com. But for now, just thanks again to Dom. Um, Thanks again to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. See you soon. Bye-bye. Yeah, and Karis, just just to keep us right, we've got, I guess, about 25 minutes for the chat, give or take. Yeah. Start making Thunderbirds motions if we're running over. It, I, I, sorry, Don, make all these cultural references to Karis, and she goes, I don't know what Thunderbirds is. <laughs> I do. <laughs> she, or do you actually know Karis? <laughs> He's not sure. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Brilliant. Okay, at least that one landed. Spaceships. Yeah. The one about the Ferrero Rocher and Ambassador you spoiled did not land. No. Okay, that's fine. You're missing out, Karis, that's all I'll say. 90s was a simpler time. It really was. Okay. Produced by Bespoken Media.